Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1 as we continue our study of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 is our passage. And that passage can be found on page 859 if you are using a church Bible. Page 859, Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. Before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and, and we ask that as we turn to your word, you would show to us wonderful things in it. We ask that by the Holy Spirit, you'd make uh, your word powerful in each of our lives, and that by the same Spirit, you would help us to understand more and more just how amazing Jesus Christ really is. Would you help our minds and our hearts to desire you and, and your truth? And we ask that you would give us great joy in you and, and a great love for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have in our text this morning a, a face-off between the Son of God and the devil himself. This is Jesus versus Satan, of whom Jesus speaks of in John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. And it is this murderous and lying devil who has successfully tempted humanity for generations upon generations into sin from the very first humans in Adam and Eve and down through their entire line thus far, Satan has been successful in his ability to lead them to take their eyes and hearts and their minds off of God and put them on to other things. And we've seen this in Jesus' own genealogy in the previous text. From even the Goliath slain and, and harp playing worshipful man after God's own heart in King David to redirect his gaze upon a bathing woman and to be somehow convinced that I must have her even if I have to seize and lie and cheat and assault and murder for the cover-up. It was Abraham in the same genealogy who had left family and home and everything that he knew. That in great faith, he believed the word of God. In great faith, he believed God. Even that kind of heart had redirected its gaze upon the supposed dangers in these new lands and new peoples, which led the same Abraham to act in such a cowardly and sinful manner, lying here and lying there. And it was the very first people in Adam and Eve, sinless and pure, in a perfect garden of paradise, walking with Yahweh himself. It is the same Satan disguised as good creation who put into their minds by the power of suggestion that perhaps God is not that good and he's not that glorious and his heart is not that for you if he would ever dare to command you not to do something that you want to do. Perhaps, dot, dot, dot. The fruit he asks you not to eat, maybe it's good for you. You ever think about that? I mean, how can he deny you this? Perhaps God is preventing you from what is good. Doesn't obedience to him feel so restrictive? Can you really trust him? 
It was this murderous line that led them to prefer a piece of forbidden fruit and autonomy away from God and everything therein to direct their eyes and minds and their hearts to that rather than to the God of all goodness and to enjoy his presence in joyful obedience in the perfect garden of Eden. And they fell. And they fell very hard. For all of human history, murder and deceit has been the devil's calling cards, and he has been quite successful. And here we are with the forerunner announcing the coming Messiah and the angels singing praise concerning the birth of Jesus and the heavens being opened to him, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and the father's own voice announcing his good pleasure upon his very own son that the devil here again springs into action. The first son of God had fallen and his race in line with him. And the second son of God has arisen and Satan hopes that the outcome would be very much the same. And so we have Jesus versus Satan. We have the second Adam against the devil. We have the very son of God and the son of man enduring Lucifer's onslaught. We read in verse one. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. It is the Holy Spirit who leads Jesus into this time of temptation and into this face-off with the devil. This is God's will for Jesus. And verse 2 is perhaps one of the great understatements of the Bible that after 40 days of eating nothing, Jesus is hungry. Most of us say, I'm starving when we've missed breakfast and lunch on the one day, and we're hangry all the way until dinner. But the fatigue here and the exhaustion and the weakness at this point is just an utter contrast to the opening heavens and descending dove and the voice of the Father in the previous text. And this isn't the scenario that most of us would ever want to find ourselves in. In the wilderness for close to six weeks, eating nothing being entirely alone and having the devil's full attention targeting our souls the entire time with a singular goal that by his lies he might murder us spiritually. This is an intense arena of massive conflict, but Luke is very clear here that this is the will and the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, verse 1, is full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, at the end of verse 1, is led by the Spirit to this exact place to endure these very things, which means that this is all part of God's plan and this is the Lord's will more than it is Satan's will. And this is an important lesson for us who claim to follow Jesus Christ and for those who desire to live fully in the Spirit. That being Spirit-led and Spirit-filled does not mean that our lives will necessarily be without trial and temptation or that our lives will always be without conflict and instead be full of comfort and great ease. Oftentimes when things go wrong, many times it is that when we are walking closest with our God, we, we are also walking in the path of great trial. That doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. And it might mean even more so that God is right there with us. Uh, who do you think sustains the man Jesus when food has failed him? And when friends and family are not around? And when the enemies' fiery darts are all aimed at Jesus. Who do you think sustains Jesus? That at the point of his greatest supposed weakness, we find our Lord ready for battle. God is right there with us, with him. 
and church family in your own relationship with God. Your relationship with them is the most important thing about you. Now, if, now if Jesus had judged his own walk in the spirit by the situation he finds himself in, hungry, alone, and under attack, by the very being who has caused generations of humanity to fall for generation, uh, centuries, if Jesus had tried to judge his own spiritual walk by his comfort level and ease and health and wealth and having his perceived needs met, if those were the only barometers of his spiritual well-being, he would conclude, I got to get out of this wilderness and into a buffet line. That suffering is inconsistent with the will of God, but it is not inconsistent with the will of God. Suffering is consistent with the will of God. And there are some of you in this room that have been striving with all your might and trying to be faithful to do exactly what God wants you to do and you find yourself in deep dilemmas and heavy trials and in the midst of great temptation and you may come to a point where you find yourself wondering, did I do something wrong? Did I make a mistake? Did I turn right over there when I should have turned left? But be reminded by the psalmist in Psalm 23, who writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Sometimes it is we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes it is that God strips a bit away from us so that we might look more towards him than we do our surroundings and our predicaments and our pains and our trials so that we might understand more and more how sufficient he really is and how little we need to fear as long as he is with us. And we see in these verses again, Jesus' humble condescension in his incarnation when he decided to become a person that he willingly endures this kind of suffering so that he might understand better and he might comfort us more, that he might sympathize with our own weakness because he has been in your shoes, that when it is you do feel weak and ashamed and less than, you don't have to recoil from Jesus, but you can run to him in confidence because he knows and he understands the pains and trials of this life. And he has endured those things for us. And he can meet you right where you are at and show you that I am enough for you. And so Jesus is right in the center of God's will. Spirit-filled and spirit-led and enduring the greatest temptation period humanity has ever seen. We continue in verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. We find Satan here in this first temptation, attacking Jesus where he feels most his need, seemingly his weakest point. The, the devil wants to use Jesus' need to tempt him. Forty days worth of hunger, perhaps, Jesus, you should work a miracle and exercise your divine prerogative to gratify your physical appetite. And I don't think that any of us would have blamed Jesus to make a stone that no one would have missed into a piece of bread to get him through the next day. I mean, no one's even watching. No one's even here. It's just, just Jesus and Satan. And therefore, no one would even know. It's been six weeks, Jesus. If the Father wanted to feed you, he would have done it by now, don't you think? 
There's a, a power to the suggestion here, like there was in the original Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, to instill this distrust in the Father's way and to raise the question if his will is really all that good because this first temptation is not ultimately about food to eat but about Jesus' very identity as the son. The devil wants the second Adam to focus on food but his underlying goal is to get Jesus to question the very words he already heard from the father at his baptism. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus heard that from Yahweh, but the devil's statement here, if you are the son of God, it functions like a taunt. Are you even beloved? Because it would seem strange to me, and I'm just an innocent third party, but it would seem strange, Jesus, that you, starving out here in the wilderness for 40 days, I just don't see that as love. And I wouldn't... Describe that as being beloved. And I wouldn't think that any father should treat his son like this. I mean, but you are the son of God. You are God himself, right? You have the divine right to feed yourself. Why not? Why should the son of God, why should any child of God ever be sore, tired, or hungry when in a moment you could be fed, rejuvenated, and satisfied? It doesn't even have to be prime rib, just a piece of bread to get you through this afternoon. Now I want you to notice that the devil doesn't try and tempt Jesus here with a bathing woman on a rooftop like David had been tempted or by foreign threats like Abraham had been tempted, or by alcohol like Noah had been tempted. This is much more subtle, and yet it is that much more destructive. What Satan wants to do is drive a wedge between the Father and the Son to tempt Jesus, to distrust God, to lead his thought life like he did Adam and Eve's. Perhaps God is withholding good from me, and he doesn't care. He's not that good to me. And he can't, therefore, be trusted. And, and the suggestion sounds innocent. And it even sounds like it's in Jesus' best interest. We all have to eat, don't we? But the devil is asking the Son of God to act outside of God and doubt the Father because if he's not going to take care of you, you have to take care of you. And brothers and sisters, although Jesus' temptation here is very unique to him, there's a broader theme of temptation that can hit each and every one of us. Anytime we desire something, even, even good things that God has not provided for us, I need more cash. I need to get married. I need a better car. I need to have children or more obedient ones than the ones I do have. I need a different boss. I need a healthier body. Need, need, need more loyal friends and need less crazy family. Anytime we can find an itch that we just can't seem to scratch, we are tempted to think maybe God doesn't love me or maybe he has forgotten about me because he's not giving to me what I need. And there's that same wedge that Satan tries to drive between the Father and the Son that our intimate connection in our relationship with God is undermined because we think we need something that he hasn't given to us. But Jesus responds with just the one sentence which comes from just the one text from Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. At Jesus' point of what should be his greatest dissatisfaction with his own life. 
he quotes a text reflecting on a period of time when Israel was in the wilderness as well. And though they were a rescued and redeemed people, a whole bunch of miracles walking through the sea on dry land, they still grumbled against their God and God let them hunger. And then he provided them with manna that fell from the sky. This is food literally falling from the sky like rain. God did that to show them food that was never your real issue, Israel. The true issue is that they had lost sight of their God and doubted him and his goodness and were distracted by slippers wearing thin and stomachs wanting to eat more and their bodies aching from all the walking that they completely lost sight of the fact that God was right there in their midst with them. Jesus here in these 40 days is better than Israel in those 40 years. Because his primary concern is living and abiding by the word of God. That that would satisfy his body and his soul more than a piece of bread ever could. And he knew that if the father wants me to eat at this very moment, well then he will let it rain. But if not, then not. Because I trust in my God. I don't live by bread alone. Brothers and sisters, this is a lesson for us. Because we are constantly tempted to, to put the physical ahead of the spiritual. Israel did that. Adam and Eve did that before them as well. Jesus would not do that. The, the materialistic desires of humanity did not appeal to our Lord and Savior more than the spiritual disciplines that arise from an intimate relationship with God. And Jesus knew that just because I am going through this wilderness experience right now, that cannot be proved that God does not love me because he has already proclaimed to me that he does. And I will take him at his word and I will trust in him more than I trust in what I'm seeing right here. But so it is that the devil would like to have us fixate on need or what we define as necessities and let our physical desire drive us more than God's word drives us where our perceived need then becomes ultimate and therefore the will of God becomes subordinate. Del Ralph Davis says it very well. He says, perhaps we can see Satan's intent. He wanted Jesus to fixate on his need, to put his need in the driver's seat. Sometimes we may do that even with legitimate needs. And when we do, we deify our own needs. We make them God. We deify our own needs. And it's not as if God doesn't care about our needs. He does. But because our present Western culture, especially our psychologically saturated culture, pummels us about our needs and harps on how important and how legitimate and proper they are and about how urgent it is to have them met. You may so elevate your needs that they become your idol and God becomes your servant who must take care and tend your idol. God, I really need this. I really need this. I really need this. And if you don't give that to me, then what are you? Your culture and sometimes even your church culture will seldom say to you, wait in the wilderness and see what God will do for you. And this is a posture we see Jesus in here. He's waiting in the wilderness and he's refusing to act in a way that's contrary to his father's will, even when his need is entirely legitimate. 
And so at the end of the first temptation, we have Jesus as the Son of God who has come to do the Father's will and not his own will, which at this very moment means trusting in him more than trusting in bread to fulfill what it is that he needs most. And this proves Christ's sonship more than any kind of miraculous transformation of stone into bread. What proves Jesus' sonship here is not miraculous power, but fidelity to his father. Verse 5, we find Satan's second attempt. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Since the devil couldn't trip Jesus up with hunger, he now seeks to trip him up with ambition. He couldn't deify Jesus' need, and so he hopes to deify potential glory instead. And I don't think, I don't know, I don't know if this is some kind of vision that Satan gives to Jesus. In a moment, all the sparkles of the kingdom of the world, and, and he feels the intoxication of political power and, and the allure of prestige and human admiration and control. I don't know how Satan is able to show this to Jesus all at once, but he does. And the offer is one of luxury and power and cultural achievement and admiration and honor and respect, the greatest kind of human kingdom without any kind of human war. You just have to bend the knee and I give it to you. Rome conquers with bloodshed, coercion, violence. They have the best weapon and the most organization and people respect that rule because they're afraid. There could be none of the violence. Just pay homage to me. The kingdom of Christ can be accomplished if you will only worship the one who would never ask you to ever get onto a cross. I can give you a crown without it. And Jesus would have been the best earthly king in this moment had he been to me. He would have righted a lot of wrongs. There would be a lot more justice, but he would have never solved our problem of sin and our separation from a holy God who is filled with love for us. This is a powerful temptation. Like all kinds of different ambitions can be powerful temptations for us to bend the knee to someone or to something other than God himself. I can't go to church. I have to study for this test. Because if I pass this test with flying colors, my GPA gets to this point, my SAT is over here, then my ambitions can be mine. That is called bending the knee. I can't really read my Bible all that much. I'm just so busy. First thing in the morning, I got to work out, do my kid's hair, get them in some nice clothes, train them for this piano thing, prep them for the big game, all of that to make me look good. My children are my ambition. I can't give or be generous to the cause of Jesus Christ because I'm saving up for a house. I just need to bend the knee to this rather than to him, and then I can have what I've always dreamed of, ambition. 
train hard, run fast, shoot the ball better, hit the ball further. And the people in the stands, literally, they stand up and they applaud me and all my efforts need to be given to consume, continue this kind of legacy. I just need to bend the knee to something else other than to God. I mean, we can spend all day filling in all kinds of these kinds of examples because the issue here really is one of worship. We believe in our heart of hearts that other things and other people will bring to us what God never could. And keep in mind that the devil doesn't look like Schmeagel. It's not like he has these big old horns and a pitchfork in his hand, all unsophisticated and utterly obvious, where everything he offers is so blatantly satanic. He can disguise himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And he can charade as your friend who has your best interest in his mind and your highest glory being offered, if you would, but just bend the knee to anything and anyone other than God himself. Worship anything else, anything but him. Jesus here is still hungry, fatigued, and exhausted. But he doesn't take that long to respond to Satan at all. And, and he doesn't reason with himself, wait a second, can Satan even make an offer like this? Does he have that kind of power? He doesn't daydream about the possibilities. You know, sometimes I get an email from Lowe's. It says, refresh your bathroom with these new vanities. Or Home Depot. It's time to transform your outdoor space. And there's some patio furniture on there. And I look at the pictures on my phone and I daydream for about five seconds about what a refreshed patio space would look like. As lows, Jesus sees all the glories of what the entire world can offer in the forms of all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus doesn't even entertain it for a second, but he pulls instead from yet another text from the book of Deuteronomy 6, 13. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. For Jesus, his worship is towards God and God only, and his highest ambition in his life is this very worship, even if the path of worship includes a cross before ever seeing a crown. Because nothing matters more to this second Adam than the worship of the only true God. That is more important than gaining the entire world. I wonder if that is becoming more and more your view of worship as well. There's a primacy to it. There's a centrality to it. This is more important than any other kind of achievement. Or if instead you've already bent your knee to something else so that your ambition for your life would be met by something other than God. And so we see in these temptations that Jesus' need is not deified, nor is Jesus' ambition deified, where he's going to worship something other than Yahweh. But the Son of God and the Son of Man has proven himself in this match against Satan to, to live by more than just bread and to worship God and God only. Verse 9, the devil tries a third time. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. In this third temptation, Satan returns to his sneering phrase, if you are the son of God. Because again, he's trying to drive this wedge in the relationship between the father and the son by making the son doubt his own identity before the father. And if it couldn't be need and it wouldn't be ambition for glory, how about presumption of relationship? That if you really want to know how God feels about you, you should test him. You should check to see if God really does love you. Oh, beloved son, true love can stand the test, right? Well, then you ought to test it. And you like to use a Bible. I can use a Bible as well. Why don't you look at Psalm 91:11? For it is written, Jesus, the angels would guard you. You jump, you think he's gonna let you die? The angels will guard you, on their hands will bury you up. You won't even strike your foot against a stone. Do you really believe the Bible, Jesus, like you say that you do? Well, then prove it. Do you really believe the promises of God? Well, then prove it. Do you really believe you're the son of God, Jesus? Well, then prove it. You really think the Father loves you? Well, then you should prove it. Why don't you take a grand leap of faith right here? Dale Ralph Davis, he writes, faith prefers to trust God than to test God. Genuine faith doesn't need sensational proof of God's attention. To press for that is testing God, not believing God. To try and push God for proof of his protection or deliverance is a sign of a lack of faith. Faith is not demanding the spectacular, but remaining content with the ordinary. When we want sensational proofs or miracles in the sky or fanciful visions or famous healings to prove that God is actually real, that isn't faith at all. And when any preacher tells you that you need this, otherwise the Holy Spirit isn't there, this isn't a spirit-led, spirit-filled ministry, we just need to come back to this text. Jesus is led by the Spirit. Jesus is filled with the Spirit. And Jesus' faith in his Father, the, the quality of the relationship, is most clearly seen here when Jesus simply says, no, I don't need any of that. And I don't need to put the Lord, my God, to the test. I don't need him to prove anything to me because I take him at his word. And just like that, Satan leaves them. Because, James 4, 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I think it's interesting looking at these three temptations. I mean, later on, Jesus would actually provide miraculous bread for the multitudes who would follow him. He could make bread into more bread. And Jesus would receive all authority in heaven and on earth in Matthew 28 before he went into heaven after the cross. All authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And when, the, when he was upon the cross, not on the temple pinnacle, when he's upon the cross, this is the ultimate submitting himself to the Father. Luke 23, 46, Jesus would cry out on that cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm going to jump off the pinnacle, but I will go to the cross 
because I committed myself to the Father, and the Father would vindicate this very same crucified Jesus in his resurrection. Everything that Satan tries to tempt Jesus with, the Father is already going to give to him at the proper time. But never did Jesus want to do this or achieve any of this apart from the Father's will. And so it's Jesus versus Satan and the Son of God against the devil himself. And after a long line, centuries and centuries of people who have fallen, we finally have the one Son of God, the one Son of Man, utterly defeat the devil because Jesus is the Son of God. He is a better Adam and the true Israel. Now from this text, I think we can learn a lot about how to fight temptation. And I think we can learn how important it is to know your Bible and your battle against sin. I mean, Jesus responds to every temptation. It is written. It is written. It is written. So everything thrown at him it is written. We have to know our Bibles. But I don't think that that is Luke's main thrust here necessarily. I think it is more so that Jesus has succeeded where everyone else has failed. Where Adam had fallen and Eve as well, Jesus did not fall there. Where David had succumbed to temptation and Abraham and Noah and you and me, where we have succumbed at those exact points, Jesus did not succumb. At the point where every single one has fallen into temptation and taken our eyes off of God and put them on to other things and deified what we felt as need, I need this. If I don't get, I need this. Or deified our own ambitious, I need to get there and worship them instead. Or put God to the test in a lack of faith. Jesus has been victorious overall and all of this so that he might be qualified to become the perfect sacrifice for us. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. In all of humanity, there's just one righteous one. And Jesus proves that in our text. Why? So that he might suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel. Jesus endures all of our temptation and doesn't fall once so that he might suffer, so that he might bring us to God. Do we need any more proof of God's great love for us? That he has given to us his beloved son. You know, if you're new here and you're not a Christian, our, our boast as Christians is not, well, we're better against temptation than you guys are. No, our boast is Jesus Christ. He's defeated all sin and he is my savior. Jesus loves me and he gave himself for me. And knowing this, I can endure in the wilderness. I can I can take him at his word. I can trust him through my trial. I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, for he is with me. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you so much, God, that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be perfect, to be righteous, to be loving, to be kind, to be understanding, to identify with us, to feel what we feel 
to go through what we go through. So like us and yet utterly unlike us and that he is righteous. Thank you for the greatest gift of love in Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that by your spirit, you would lift our chins and direct our eyes to behold you in him more than we look at anything else in this world. Pray that whatever we're going through in this life, whatever wilderness experience, whatever need that's torturing us, whatever ambition that's, that's distracting us, I pray, God, more and more that you would cause the glory of your son to shine brightly into our hearts so that we might really know what's really worth spending our lives upon. I pray, God, that you would fill us with love and joy, that you would help us as much as we're able to understand how much it is that you love us. I pray, Lord, that that would be more enabling and intoxicating, that our ambition would be worship. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.